Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring uh, the trials and tribulations of Joseph uh, through the lens of this series called uh, God Meant It For Good. And tonight we'll finally see the, kind of, the goodness of God's plan in Joseph's life uh, begin to reveal itself. Uh, tonight, Joseph gets his win. Uh, who here has experienced um, a win? A big life win, or maybe a small life win? Who here is incredibly competitive at all things, no matter what it is? Um, a, few weeks, a few weeks ago, a group of us from here uh, went to Junkyard Golf in town. Uh, which I kind of feel like is the kind of game that shows people true competitive nature. Um, you get those who track every shot by everyone at every time. They're like, they grip the, the scorecard with, like, with a really clenched fist and they hold onto that pencil just in case anyone wants to cheat. Um, you get the surprisingly skilled putters who after a cocktail or two kind of become Tiger Woods. Uh, that was Corey, if any of you know who Corey is. I was kind of hoping she'd be here to let us know, but... Um, yeah, she seemed to be getting hold on one, so it's pretty impressive. Um, and then there's those as well who care so little that they're just pleased to know where their ball is by the 18th <laughs> hole. So it's a real mixed bag. Um, but winning, losing, and everything in between brings out a behaviour in us. Um, and tonight I want to talk about worldly wins and heavenly victories. Um, and how do we deal with worldly wins and worldly defeats uh, when we believe in the heavenly victory? Um, recently, I went to watch Stockport play Grimsby in a very exciting, rainy football game. Um, and my friends and I were sat behind the goal, looking directly down the pitch, and at the far end were the Grimsby fans. And as the game kicked off, they all swarmed down to the adverts at the bottom of the stand, um, and they started hammering away at them. And they hammered at them so much, they began to break, and stewards had to come on and carry them off. Um, it really wasn't about football for them at all. Um, but Grimsby scored first, and then they started pulling in the back of the net, and the Stockport keeper's in that. So that's basically like being in front of uh, enemy territory at this point. There's, he stood there by himself, and they're all pulling on the net um, and ch- chanting and shouting at him. And then, out of nowhere, uh, once they score, uh, the police appear, and police swarm in from the side and just start arresting people because it's so chaotic. Punches are thrown by fans at police, by fans at fans, and police at fans. So everyone gets a fair share of it. Um, but the Grimsby fans turned up, and they were so ready just to take on the police because their team had scored. And we'd barely played 20 minutes. Um, they won and the game finished. And they all swarmed out into the street, ready to let the Stockport fans know that their time was, in fact, not very nice to be in. And that they would all rather be in Grimsby. <laughs> they would all rather be in Grimsby. I didn't even know where Grimsby was until that Saturday. Um, but there were people there whose behaviour was so influenced by a worldly win. In this case, a single goal that hadn't even decided the game yet. They were prepared to fight for it. They were prepared to punch police and get arrested. All decisions that could influence the rest of their life. But do you have a moment or an experience or maybe an ongoing situation that influences your behaviour? Is there a win or a defeat that you cling to that you compare your present day to or maybe your future or your past? During our time on earth, we'll experience worldly wins and worldly defeats. Most of life will most likely be made up of the latter. And more importantly, they will not come in equal measure. And we'd all love a sneak peek uh, at when our valleys might end. And if we just knew the outcome, then maybe we could influence our situation to speed up where we want to get to, where we should be. 
In John 16.33, um, Jesus speaks this over his disciples. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We live in a final victory, bigger than this one, bigger than this world, bigger than our valley, which should influence our behaviour, and how we carry ourselves in defeat and also in victory. This is the key takeaway today. Joseph reaches the end of his valley, but his behaviour in defeat is what we can learn from, so that when we reach where God wants us to be, we're ready for it. So to quickly summarise, if you've been around the last few weeks, you're probably fairly familiar now with the story so far. His family tried to kill him, then they sold Joseph into slavery, then Joseph is pulled from slavery and despair, and despair, but begins to thrive in the house of Potiphar. Rightly so, Joseph unfairly and justly had his family stripped from him because he was at the envy of his brothers. But Joseph still stayed faithful to God. But it's fine because now God is going to sort him out with a nice job in a nice house. Not quite. Joseph is then a victim of sexual assault and lust at the hand of Potiphar's wife, who uses her high position in society to try and exploit someone below her and then naturally, Joseph gets in prison for it. And in chapter 40, as we heard last week, Joseph is still very much in prison. But God is blessing him in his work under the warden. He has an encounter with a cupbearer and a baker. He interprets their dreams correctly, which is great for the cupbearer and not so great for the baker. The cupbearer survives, just as his dream had said. And the baker was impaled, just as his dream had said. Then this lucky cupbearer gets out of prison and forgets Joseph entirely. Joseph interprets their dreams and they head off. One dies and one thrives. God blessed him with the correct interpretations of the dreams and then Joseph had to continue to wait under lock and key. Joseph behaves like a person who truly understands a heavenly victory, a belief that emanates from him. After all of that, all that's happened, Joseph is patient. His faithful behaviour in the face of defeat is his testimony. And then in chapter 41, our chapter this week, Joseph is called to be an example to the Pharaoh, to the nation, soon his own family, and also for us. Joseph's patience shows his faith in God's plan. This is quite a long chapter, so I'm going to pull out key points to, to tell this story. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis 41, and we will read uh, verses 1 to 8 to kick us off. So, Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. So Pharaoh is distressed by a couple of dreams that he's had and can't find anybody in Egypt who could give him the interpretation. He sent for all his magicians and the wise men in Egypt, but none of them had a clue. And Pharaoh's dreams were quite similar in content. In the first one, seven fat cows emerged from the Nile and fed on the grass, only to be followed by seven thin cows that ate the fat ones. And in the second dream, seven uh, plump ears of corn were eaten by seven thin ears of corn. And I'll be honest, I don't really remember my dreams. And as far as I can tell, God hasn't spoken to me through my dreams yet, but maybe he will. The only dream I can remember is um, 
one that I can interpret as a definite stress dream. Uh, I was playing drums at the time in a church that was pretty big with high production values and expectations on how worship could and should be played. Um, so my dream involved me getting up on stage to play uh, and the drums would be all over the place. Um, and I'd spend the entire first song trying to fix them and put them back together, but it just, it just wouldn't work. Um, then, which I kind of see as the sequel to the stress dream, was I would get up and the drums would all be in place and I'd start playing and then the sticks would disintegrate. Um, and I have to start playing with my hands and it just, it just doesn't work. Um, thankfully, neither of these happened in real life. Um, but dream interpretation, uh, it holds like a really interesting position uh, in our modern society too. Um, it's used by cults. It's a popular plot point in films, books, or art. It comes up in our conversation in a spiritual sense or offhandedly talking about a weird one or a funny one or a stressful one. People go to counselling to understand dreams or nightmares. And it's even become one of the trendy books you now see in the house section at Urban Outfitters for 15 quid. <laughs> Alongside using astrology to manifest your best life and Harry Styles and the clothes he wears. <laughs> All of which in some form are offering a way to improve your life if you understand your dreams, the stars, or where the, the clothes Harry Styles does, then you're going to be happier. If you buy this book, it will influence your behaviour and you will achieve a worldly win which will better your life. In a world that claims to be anti-authority and very pro-living your own truth or your own best life, we're screaming for guidance on how we actually do that. Live your truth, live your best life. All sounds class, but how do we do that? Tell me, like, tell me where to start in a society that's so fractured and so fickle uh, in its opinions. Every one of these three books is in the self-help section of a very popular shop that is on the majority of high streets around the world. We can walk past it, like I do, and laugh at these books. But what I've come to realize is that I'm, I'm no better. I have things in my life that I think, if I could just solve that or get hold of that or go there, then I'll be sorted, I'll be content. And people buy these books in the hope of giving some sort of meaning to their life, or in this case, their dreams. It's popular because it lets, it, it lets you believe you're in control of it. It's you who's making sense of it, all of which is part of your truth, your best life. It's emotional and spiritual exploitation, which weaponizes a vulnerability, the fact that everyone needs help and guidance, but are blind to know what they're actually taking in. And the Pharaoh is a biblical example of this exact belief system. He's distressed experiencing a serious worldly defeat and has no idea how to handle it or what to do. So he uses his power to bring in magicians and wise men because in Egypt, dreams are a really big deal. But this failure by his smartest and wisest completely undermines Egypt's whole approach to dreams. And we've already seen in this story that dreams can be filled with revelation, but their true spiritual meaning won't come from magicians, wise men, or books and urban outfitters. Pharaoh was searching for answers that could and will only come from God which is a truth that is sung over and over again in the Psalms and is seen throughout the Bible. In Psalm 38, 15, For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. In Psalm 86, In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. And finally in Psalm 20, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Throughout the Bible we see God answer prayer and reveal that he has a plan for his people. And this is the same for us now. Although we sometimes don't have the faith to see it. But like it says in John 16, Take heart, I have overcome the world. It was at this point in the story that the cupbearer very conveniently remembers Joseph and he is summoned to appear before Pharaoh. So we've seen Pharaoh turn to the wrong things. What might some of our equivalents be? 
What are the things you go to when stuff feels out of control? Maybe it's the wrong people. Maybe it's alcohol, drugs, porn. Maybe it's treating others a certain type of way because you're struggling. Therefore, everybody else should be too. But as we'll see next, in all of the change and madness, God is a constant and remains always faithful. Joseph has been taking heart by being steadfast in his faith and patient in his trials, knowing that God has been doing work and now his time has come. And after two years of hanging around, he is called before Pharaoh. Joseph is just as faithful when he comes into this position of favour before Pharaoh as he was in his sufferings. He shows through, through his behaviour that his heart is planted firmly in God's plan for his life. And this is clear right from the jump uh, in verses 14 to 16, um, which I will read. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one could interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. It does take some time for Pharaoh to realise Joseph is a man speaking by the Spirit of God, which we get to later in verse 38. So for now, it's mainly Joseph's boldness and his confidence in God that stands him in good stead. He doesn't know that where he's going to end up. He doesn't know where he's going to end up by the end of this chapter. He just knows that this is the next step in God's plan for his life. His faith is big enough that he sees it as an opportunity to evangelize to Pharaoh. Joseph isn't there to try and convince Pharaoh of anything more or less than what the situation requires. He doesn't bring up any of his past hardships or the fact that Pharaoh's cupbearer forgot about him for two years. Joseph humbles himself and allows God to continue to work. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, 3 verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Here, Joseph exhibits a kind of humility that shows he truly understands he is not enough on his own, but that it's the Spirit of God inside him that works on his behalf. This is godly humility, which for me is an ongoing practice of getting it wrong and trying again. How many times have you experienced being in an argument with someone and they're so clearly in the wrong and in order to get your voice heard, to make sure justice is served on your terms, you begin to list off all the things they did to you. You pull out all the receipts. But what we see Joseph do in this scenario is give up his opportunity to have his voice heard. And he could have listed off my summary of the story so far, but he wasn't focused on being right. He was focused on the will of God. Now my practice lies in giving whatever I do over to God. And my heart is naturally inclined to lean towards that worldly win rather than the heavenly victory. If I can just be heard, make someone see my side and feel vindicated, then I'll be sorted. But then there's the realisation that it's a never-ending search. How many people need to tell us we're right or good enough or worth enough before it finally becomes cemented in our heads that we'll never ever doubt it again, we'll never have to ask that question again? just like the search for living your best life, sponsored by the self-help section at Urban Outfitters. No matter how it turns out, I'm not sufficient in myself to claim anything is coming from myself. My sufficiency is from God. And then in 25 to 32, let me just find myself. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. 
The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that followed it will be so severe. The reason that the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So just like in prison, Joseph used his gift of dream interpretation to explain what the dreams meant. And this time, it was a prediction of a seven-year famine to follow seven years of plenty. The fact that there were true dreams was simply a confirmation of what God was saying. And in verse 25, Joseph says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph continues to show that he is fully aware this is God at work and not him. He then repeats himself in verse 28, just in case Pharaoh hadn't got at the message the first time, that it is God at work and not Joseph. In verse 31, Joseph says, then all the abundance in Egypt will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The behaviour and approach to life that Egypt had during its prosperous years will disappear when trouble hits. Their behaviour will change. Now, seven years of famine is fairly extreme, so it's reasonable to assume that the behaviour of the Egyptian people was going to change. Because we do the same, don't we? I know I do. I hear all these truths about God's provision and the heavenly victory that we are a part of. And when I cannot do it, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. That's a different page, I think. Yes, it is. Nice one. Yes, sorry. So I believe it when life is good. I believe it when life is easy. And it's easy to believe. And, it, and my faith feels like a lovely add-on to the fact that life is smooth sailing. When we're raking in the worldly winds, the heavenly victory doesn't feel so strong. Then life throws in its curveballs. And you maybe find yourself praying more, or maybe less. But your belief in the fact that God is good and has already won is maybe not as sturdy as you thought. Our faith is tested in difficult times, as is our behaviour. And this is quite a unique situation. And in our case, we don't know what or when our our wins or defeats are going to arrive. Sometimes God steps in, gives us a hint through words, pictures or dreams. But in this case, the Egyptians had a full-blown confirmation. And it echoes a little bit of Peter um, in the Gospels. On the night of Jesus' arrest, before he was crucified, Jesus has forewarned Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And Peter was adamant he wouldn't do it. He was almost offended by the possibility that this could happen. And then he does. And hindsight can be a funny thing. We psych ourselves up for how we want to be, act or speak in certain situations. But then in the moment, we don't always nail it, do we? Joseph was practicing a mindset in his trials and in his victories of patience, faithfulness and commitment to God. If we can learn to do life with the understanding that we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world then we're on to something. How do we do that? I've been learning recently that it's simply discipline. It's discipline in reading my Bible, praying, listening out for God's voice in my everyday, also resting and allowing myself to stop and realise that the world will keep spinning and keep functioning, even if I stop to go for a walk without a time limit, leave my phone at home, or sit on a bench and just watch the world go by. If we're disciplined and welcome the Holy Spirit into our everyday, then we will find a way to overcome trials, no matter how long they last. And we will also be grateful for the the wins in the right way, because we've already gained a victory, bigger than whatever we might gain here on earth.
And so we've seen that spiritually, Joseph has put God front and centre in this conversation with Pharaoh, and he's acted with humility. This then empowers him to behave with authority and use the gifts he's been given. He can now step into influence. So if you want to turn to 37, verse 37 with me, and I'll read 37 to 43. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph has made it. Joseph has shown throughout his story that he is an effective administrator. He organized Potiphar's house and was given responsibilities in prison. And now his knowledge allows him to be an asset to the Pharaoh when it came to planning responsibly for the famine that lay ahead of him. And finally, Pharaoh recognizes Joseph as a man speaking by the Spirit of God in verse 38, or verse 39. Joseph's behavior and authority is so clearly from God that Pharaoh can no longer just humor this man who interprets dreams. He has to utilize and empower him. Pharaoh promotes Joseph, effectively making him prime minister which is, of course, a very prestigious title that is privileged and no one would ever, ever lack so much integrity to take advantage of that role anywhere, <laughs> anyway. This makes Joseph a man of faith and integrity, second in part only to Pharaoh, all because Joseph stepped out and was bold in his faith. I imagine there was a part of him that somewhere along the way might have been remembering the baker who was impaled while all this was happening, because speaking out and being bold can be quite scary. How do you think you would be when stood before Pharaoh? Or maybe think of it as being stood before your boss, lecturer, or someone with power and authority. Would you shrink? Maybe not bring a contribution at all. Even when we have something good to offer. Or maybe you do the, go the opposite direction and you talk until the cows come home, concerned about how silence might be misinterpreted. And with influence, do we see influence as solely owned by those who lead, or those who carry responsibility or important or maybe carry themselves as if they are or think they are. Maybe you hear the word influence and think, good stuff, that doesn't concern me at all. I don't have and don't want any of that. I actually think we all have to understand that we all carry an influence. Our behaviour when those around us know we are Christian really speaks volumes, even when it's not mentioned. Why is it that so often people ask their big face questions at 2am in the queue for a nightclub after a bit to drink? Or maybe not until you've brought it up or present an opinion that shatters someone's view of Christians. We all carry an influence, and we might be the only Christian that someone meets. And like Joseph, we have to navigate carefully the challenge of being in the world, but not of the world. Joseph is immersed successfully in the Egyptian culture, with an Egyptian wife and its way of life. But when his sons are born, their very names made clear where Joseph's loyalties lay. With their names Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget my hardship and all my father's house. And Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It doesn't sound like his wife had much of an input into either of them. <laughs> Joseph's behaviour is influenced by God. Joseph became a blessing to the poor, providing food for many who would have otherwise starved, and multiplied this blessing to the nations, because we're told that 
all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Gaining influence, whether on Joseph's scale or just among your friends or colleagues or peers, can be an avenue to really see God move. And we have to guard our hearts to make sure we use our influence well. Sometimes we can get wrapped up in worldly winds, which means we forget about the heavenly victory. We can be consumed by culture around us and justify it as trying to gain influence or a way into the group. Joseph could have been consumed by the culture, but his faith during adversity meant his faith was strong enough to weather the storm of having influence and power and success. So to finish, how do we do this? How do we contend with adversity, with influence, with wins and losses? Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, talks about this idea of a rule of life. He says this, Our behaviour stems from a rule of life, and our goal is to regulate our entire lives in such a way that we prefer the love of Christ above all things. If our rule in life is to choose Jesus, then we're setting our eyes on a heavenly victory that is far beyond any worldly win and any worldly defeat. We're choosing a victory that happened when he died on the cross for us. I'm just going to invite the band back up as we, as we finish. The context for John 16.33 is Jesus has been preparing and comforting his disciples, and he's been doing it for four whole chapters, for what it's going to look like in the world of what will look like a serious worldly defeat. He's going to be captured and crucified. Um, and he says to them, they will kill you. The world will rejoice while you grieve. You will be scattered to your homes. And Jesus is so aware of what is to come. But he finishes with, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world.